Skyborne, Episode 13, Me and That Train, by K.G. Lockrams. And I looked into my blue eyes, and I connected with my pain, and my sorrow, and my fatigue, and my loneliness. And I said to my reflection, I figured it out. I'm gay. As soon as the words left my lips, I felt the weight of my struggle lift from my spirit, followed immediately by a rush of self-loathing. I would die of AIDS. I would be a pedophile. I would be physically attacked. Everything I knew about being a gay man, I had learned from television shows, movies, and media coverage of AIDS and pride parades. Anti-gay messaging from the media was relentless. Their coverage of pride parades was sparse, if at all, and focused on the most sensational aspects. Dykes on bikes, Nambla, men dressed head-to-toe in black leather, and men in drag. Although gay characters were appearing in mainstream movies, they were almost always shown as sad, tragic figures who converted to being straight, furthering the message that one's sexual orientation was a choice, committed suicide, or had the shit beaten out of them at some point for daring to be openly gay. And so my first thoughts after saying the words out loud to myself were, I don't want to be a pedophile, and I don't want to die from AIDS. I left the bathroom and went downstairs. Lance, Carrie, and Ginger were saying their goodbyes. Lance said goodnight to me, and Carrie called out, I'm glad you figured it out. What? I asked, afraid she'd somehow overheard me coming out to myself in the mirror. The error. I'm glad you figured it out, she said. Oh, thanks. Ginger and I were alone. What was the error? What did you figure out? She asked and waited. I'm gay, I said, and began to sob. Loud, uncontrollable, snot-filled, body-shaking sobs. Oh my, she said and moved in to hug me. Let it out. It's okay. I had what a friend of mine calls an ugly cry, which I take to mean is a soul-cleansing release of long-held sorrow and stress. I cried out of fear for what my life would be like. I cried for all the stereotypes I thought I'd have to embrace. I cried for letting go of the weight I had carried and keeping the secret inside myself. And I cried at the thought of what may come. When I finally caught my breath, Ginger took a step back and asked, Are you okay? I feel a bit of everything at the moment, but yeah, I'm okay. I feel lighter? But Ginger, I'm not a pedophile. What? I'm confused. Where's that coming from? Well, the only gay person I'd ever met worked at the airport, and my father always said he was a pedophile, and the media is always saying gay men are pedophiles, and that's just not who I am. And she laughed. I hadn't expected that. I'm sorry for laughing, she said, but Kit, that is such bullshit. I know that's the messaging, but it's complete horseshit to polarize people and vilify gays. What else are you carrying around? I don't want to die of AIDS. And I started to cry again. She held me, and as I got myself under control, she said, I know it's scary, but one doesn't mean the other. You know my history. You just have to be safe when it comes to sex. It's the media, isn't it? Yeah. That just sells papers and gets ratings. When it was about women's rights, women who supported them were shown as child-hating, man-hating, penis-envying lesbians. She went into the kitchen, came back with a glass of water, and we sat down on the sofa in silence. 
After a while, she said, I owe my mom $5. What? Why? She told me the first time she met you, she thought you might be gay. Is it that obvious? No, not at all. She's just really good at that for some reason. I felt unsafe that someone had seen in me something I'd spent so much energy trying to hide. For what it's worth, she thinks you're amazing and won't care. And neither do I. You're the kindest person I know. You're fantastic, and don't let anyone tell you differently. Not even you. Okay. What's next? How do you mean? What are you going to do with this insight? Nothing. I just needed to say it out loud, and I needed to tell someone I trust. I've been struggling with this since fifth grade. Seriously? Wait, how did this come up in fifth grade? That's a long story for another time. Understood. I won't tell anyone about this. Not even my mother. This is your story to tell. Thanks. I'm beat. I'm going to head home. Free advice? She asked as I opened the door. I nodded. Be careful who you tell. I learned that the hard way with my herpes. Once you tell someone something, you have no control over where that information will travel. I drove home, going back and forth between fear and relief the whole way. Within a few days, I called Elroy and asked if he'd like to get together. We still occasionally saw each other, and at this point in my life, he was my longest friendship. I don't remember what we did that day, but when I got back to his parents' place to drop him off, I turned off the car before he got out. He turned and looked at me expectantly. In all the years of our friendship, since elementary school, we never discussed our sexual identities. I had been anticipating this conversation ever since an incident in high school, when he went to France with a French class, and all doubt had been removed as to his orientation, which traveled through school like wildfire. I thought it would be a relief to share this part of myself with him. I think I may be gay, I said. May. I was still not ready to fully commit. I'm moving, he replied. What? Why? Things are not good with him. He nodded toward his house and was referring to his stepfather. He looked out his window and away from me and the house. I need to get out. Where are you going? I have friends in D.C., he said, still looking away, out his window, toward the road. When are you leaving? As soon as I can. I don't know what to say, Elroy. He had never opened up about the issue with his stepdad, who had all the signs of being an abuser. I'd seen firsthand over the years how he tore Elroy down, privately and publicly, any chance he had. He looked back at me. You're being silly thinking you may be gay. If you're gay, be gay. And get out of here if you can't be who you are. I am. And he shifted his gaze straight ahead toward his house. He reached over and put his left hand on my right forearm gave it a long, gentle squeeze, opened his door, got out of my car, and went inside without another word. There was another friend I'd been wanting to tell, but for a different reason. Jonah. Jonah and I had known each other for years through all-county band. You had to audition to get in, so it was filled with talented people who cared about music. He played the bassoon. I had never been able to make a sound on a reed instrument. Elroy used to let me try a saxophone, but nothing. I couldn't even make it squawk. Jonah played beautifully. He was of average height, naturally lean, and by our freshman year of high school, he was also naturally well-muscled and covered with body hair. All his brothers were, too. I was about to enter my junior year of college and still only needed to shave once a week, if that. He was soft-spoken, tender-hearted, 
and I developed a crush on him over the years. At the time, I was still deluding myself with a cover story that I just wanted to look like him, but I knew better as I got older. After I stopped band, given we didn't attend the same high school, I no longer saw him, but he started working at Kmart, and we were able to strike up a friendship and had years of shared experiences to draw from. After I left Kmart and started college, we would occasionally go bowling together. I called him to see if he wanted to get together and picked him up at Kmart one day. We went bowling, then decided to go for a drive. Sometimes that's all there was to do in our county, just drive around. We spent a couple of hours wandering around the back roads with the windows down, enjoying the warm air and smell of honeysuckle, talking. I eventually brought him back to Kmart, which was now closed for the day. We were both going to the same university in the fall and would be living on campus, and we talked for at least another hour. I realized I was stalling, dragging out the conversation to work up the nerve to tell him I was gay. I was sure he was also, but it was difficult for me to say the words out loud. Unlike telling Elroy, I had a crush on Jonah, which meant I had more emotion invested in the disclosure. As I braced myself to tell him, my body temperature suddenly fell, just as it had that evening at the ditch with Dan and the night at the racetrack with Pip. I suddenly felt sick to my stomach, my mouth went dry, my teeth started to chatter, and my legs were shaking. Jonah, before you go home, I want to tell you something. I think I'm gay. I was absolutely certain he'd say the same thing back and had imagined my disclosure would end up in some wonderful makeout session there in the parking lot. A lot of adolescents feel mixed up about their sexuality, he said. I must be doing this wrong, I thought to myself. I was taken aback on two counts. First, once again, I had misjudged what someone's response would be. Second, it was probably the most intelligent thing I'd ever heard him say but it wasn't what I'd expected or wanted to hear. My mother always tells me to take my friends where I find them, he said. So that's okay with me. I had a great time, but I should be getting home. Let's get together again this summer and catch up about the fall semester. How cool is it that we're going to be going to the same college? He got out of the car, waved goodnight, and drove away. I wanted to throw up all that anxiety for nothing, and I felt more exposed than ever. Son of a bitch, I said. And her mother always referred to one of the tellers at her bank as that faggoty teller, Michael. I had a feeling about what it meant, but I never really thought much about it. After school when I got home, I pulled out our well-worn dictionary with the white pleather cover and flipped to the F's. Faggot. Noun. A bundle of twigs, sticks, or branches bound together. See also homosexual. Homosexual. Pertaining to character. Characteristic of or exhibiting homosexuality. A homosexual person. Homosexuality. Noun. Sexual desire for others of one's own sex. It would take me another nine years to claim the fact of what I'd known in fifth grade. Nine years of shame, anxiety, hiding, depression, sleeplessness, awkward sexual experiences, lies, and a rape. I was 12 years old the first time my mother came home from having run her errands and mentioned the faggoty teller at her bank. I was instantly curious to see this person. The only other gay person I'd ever met was Jeff from the airfield, the guy my father warned me away from in case he tried to molest me. The only thing Jeff ever did to me was acknowledge my existence and give me a Coke one day. To hear about another person in town at that age who may also be homosexual immediately caught my attention. Michael was two years older than my brother, which made him seven years older than me. 
Each time my mother would say she needed to run errands or go to the bank, I was in the car and ready to go. It took me several trips to figure out he only worked part-time after school. Finally, it happened, and Michael was working the drive through lane when I happened to tag along with my mother. I sat behind her in the back seat of the station wagon. The bulletproof glass had a deep green hue and I could barely see him. He had brown hair, and that was all I got. His back was turned away from the window as my mother pulled away. It took another year before I was able to see him again, and again he was working the drive through window. As my mother pulled away, she dropped something and had to stop the car, with me directly opposite the window. He had his back to me again, but as we pulled away, he turned around. He looked at me, and I threw myself on the floor of the back seat, afraid of what might happen if he saw me. What are you doing back there? My mother asked. Nothing, I said as I sat up and looked out the rear window, trying to see him as he pulled away, but the angles were wrong. Another trip to the bank window occurred that spring, when I had my window rolled down. This time, I was able to see him full on. He had brown hair and eyes, was rather pale, had a beak-like nose, and was generally unremarkable. What's all the fuss? I wondered. I don't know what I was expecting, but Michael was just a teenager. I couldn't understand why my mother was always so down on him. He was perfectly pleasant, polite, he had a larger-than-life demeanor, but he wasn't the mincing caricature she made him out to be. Before he passed my mother's things back through the drawer, he made eye contact with me, gave me a crisp wave, held up a dum-dum, and arched his eyebrows as if to ask, Want a lollipop? I nodded. He dropped it into the drawer, then waggled his fingers at me in a wave as we pulled off. It made me smile. Faggot, my mother said as she pulled away. I scrambled over the back of the front seat, grabbed the dum-dum, sat back, unwrapped it, and put it in my mouth. My curiosity was satisfied, and I stopped trying so hard to go to the bank with my mother. He was just a guy like anyone else. A bit flamboyant, friendly, but just a normal person. This was the year before she called me upstairs after I'd offered my father a blowjob and asked me if I was a faggot. I used to spend a lot of energy imagining how different my life could have been had I been born to different parents. The more I struggled with my sexual identity, the more time I spent thinking about Michael. I wondered what his life was like. Did he have a hard time of things because he was so obviously gay? Did people at work give him a hard time? Did everyone reduce him to the faggoty bank teller? Or was that just my mother? Did his parents know? Did they love him anyway? I imprinted on him over the coming years, and he became, for me, the symbol of what a typical small-town gay man was. Just a guy at a bank, earning a living. I was still working at the large retailer for the summer. My plan was to work until fall, and then pick up shifts over winter and spring break. That way I'd have money, and still get the employee discount for clothes. The only other thing on my plate was to finish my ceramics class to complete my associate's degree. Dan was spending all of his free time with Kathy. It was clear by now she was the one for him, and he was the one for her. I came home from work one day in June and got a phone call from a former professor of mine, Ms. Jennings. I had taken her public speaking course the year before, and she was also the head of the college's theater program. She was a force of nature. She was barely five feet tall, had a nasal voice, a huge head of dark curly hair, and was moody as hell. But I liked her. Kit, it's Wendy Jennings. I'm calling to see if you know about the children's theater summer camp I run through the college's drama program. No, I don't. 
Every summer we put on a show, and this year I'm combining the children's theater with the adult program, and I'm looking for as many people to audition as possible. We're doing the musical Oliver, and I'm hoping you'll try out. I was silent. Although I knew one day I wanted a family, I was also uncomfortable around young children. I was uncomfortable because I had no idea how to engage with them. The majority of my examples were negative, and if I could, I avoided being around them altogether. I always felt awkward. Didn't you say you used to be in the band, choir, and drama in high school? Yeah, good memory. You'd be doing me a huge favor if you auditioned. But it's also a huge commitment. If you get cast, which I assume you will, rehearsals are five nights a week through July and start next week. Can I think about it and let you know? I'm sorry, but no. I know it's a lot to throw at you, but the last auditions are tonight at 6. I looked at my swatch. It was 4.15. I haven't sung in three years, I said. That's fine. We're looking for chorus members at this point, so you don't need to have anything prepared. They'll just have you do scales and sing happy birthday or something since you're not trying out for an actual part. I'm sure you'll do great. I was still silent. Please? Okay, Ms. Jennings, I said. Terrific. Call me Wendy. You're not my student anymore. Then almost as an afterthought, she said, And wear something comfortable. There's a dance component to the audition. See you at six! And she quickly hung up. Dance? What the hell was I getting myself into? I felt she knew that would be my reaction, which was why she blurted it out just before hanging up. I was glad I didn't have much time to worry about it. The theater space was an old elementary school between the apartment my mother had rented after the divorce and the now-vacant lot at the grocery store I used to work at that had exploded. When I arrived, there were dozens of people milling around. I signed in, was called by the choreographer, and shown some dance steps, then sent in to meet the voice coach and director. I felt ridiculous, but everyone there couldn't have been nicer. I ran scales and overheard the voice coach say that I had an amazing range, which at the time I did. I could go from baritone to alto with my falsetto. I did the dance steps and was told I was in if I wanted to be. So I said, sure. I'd never been part of such a large group of people volunteering their time and working so hard toward a single goal. Community theater is a unique culture of varying talents. Few people are paid, usually the director, choreographer, set designer, and musicians. But even then, not much. It's a dedication of time and passion. When I arrived for the first rehearsal, there were well over 50 people involved in the production, ranging in age from about 8 to 60. There were people I'd gone to high school with, as well as some of their parents and siblings. There were people from the junior college, and some from the university with a library used for school research. The rest of the people were from the community at large, who just wanted to be part of the production in one way or another. I was standing directly between the entrance to the auditorium and the staircase up to the stage from the floor. Paul, who was both the voice coach and one of the leads, came into the auditorium from behind me. Michael! he shouted. Has anyone seen Michael? Here I am, someone called out from off stage. I looked up. Enter the faggoty bank teller Michael, stage left. I was 20, which made him 27. He was larger than life, knew most everyone in the room, and I couldn't stop staring at him as he walked toward me. What are you staring at, kid? He said with a friendly tone and a smile. I just kept staring. Better close your mouth before Fly gets in. I snapped my mouth shut. Keep your pants on, Paul, I'm coming he said as he walked by me, and they both exited the auditorium. Holy shit. After so many years of my mother mentioning him and using him as a consistent and negative example of all things wrong with being a faggot, 
he had become for me homosexuality personified. From the time I was 12 years old, his name had been regularly uttered by my mother. As I worked out my sexuality, his existence had been the only real-life measure or benchmark I had for a gay man, and as a result, he had taken on the unexpected status of gay role model. I was drawn to him because of the symbol he had become in my life, and I was afraid of him because I would be in his presence five days a week for most of the summer and was concerned that he'd see me, the real me, the me I was still coming to understand, and that he'd see things in me that even I didn't see. You okay? A woman who looked to be in her thirties asked me. Yeah, who was that? I asked, feigning ignorance. Michael or Paul? Michael. Oh, he's been involved at the theater for years. He's a great actor and singer. He's cast all the time. He's super nice and very talented. He and Paul have known each other forever. What's your name? Kit. Hi, I'm Annette. As rehearsals began, I continued to feel as if I'd found a special place to belong. To say that being part of a community theater fosters a sense of belonging sounds like such a cliché. But as with most clichés, they're cliché because they are in fact true. No one cared about anyone's orientation, marital status, career, or finances. People just wanted to perform, entertain, or help make it all happen. There was no shortage of hard work, opportunities, talent, or egos. But it felt like a safe space from the very beginning. And safe spaces were rare and precious to me. Speaking of talent and egos, Paul and Michael had both in equal measure. And so did Wendy in her way. She wasn't a performer, but she could squeeze a penny until it bled dimes to get the program she created up and running. It became apparent as the summer wore on that Paul was also gay, and the three of them, Paul, Michael, and Wendy, had been collaborating together for some time. Paul took a liking to me and gave me a couple of small roles in the show, and an even smaller solo. It was about four measures long, but I was thrilled. I also got to play a constable who shot the main villain with a 19th century black powder pistol. As the summer unfolded, outside of work and school, I spent every available minute working on that show. Paul and I continued to develop a friendship, and I eventually came out to him. I had a feeling, he said, but at your age, I thought it better to leave it up to you to tell me rather than asking. It's a delicate matter. I appreciate that. I'm still trying to figure it out. I mean, I've known forever, but I'm not exactly comfortable with it. You're young. You've got time to figure it out. If you are, you are. And if you're not, you're not. If you ever have questions about it or need someone to talk to, I'm happy to help or listen. It's not easy. It's never been easy. He never hit on me. He never said anything sexual or inappropriate to me. He didn't steer me one way or another. He just made himself available, one human being to another. He became both friend and mentor. I got a call from Carrie one day. I'm going to Scotland for vacation. Wow, that sounds amazing. All I've ever done is study and save my money, and I need to get away and see the world. When are you leaving? I asked. She was going to be gone the same weeks we were putting on the musical. I'm glad for you you're going, but disappointed you won't see the show. She then went into painful detail as to what she was going to see, when she was going to see it, and why. Whatever you do, don't fall in love. That's a weird thing to say. Why would you say that? She was desperate to fall in love and get married. She talked about it all the time. Is it? I don't know. Just don't fall in love with someone who lives in another country on your first summer vacation after graduation. Seems like practical advice. We entered the final week of rehearsals and then dress rehearsals, which meant everyone had to be in costume. The school's old kitchen served as the green room. 
There was no separate dressing room or even divider for the women and the men. Everyone just got changed in front of each other. I was hesitant to undress in a room full of strangers. I was holding my first costume in my hand and looking around for somewhere private. There's no such thing as modesty in theater, Annette said to me. You can either change in front of us, along with all of us, or step out into the side yard and change out there. I thought I'd take my chances and stepped out the side door into the yard. And there was Michael, having a cigarette and wearing a pair of street shorts, shoes, and nothing else. He and a friend I'd gone through public school with were tossing a football back and forth. The thought of changing in front of him was too much, and I went back inside. Paul was already in costume and putting on his makeup. I see how you are around him, he said to me quietly. I'll have to tell you all about that someday, I said. Look, if you're really uncomfortable, go change in the bathroom. But you won't have time for that during the performance, given you're playing three different characters. You also don't want anyone from the audience to see you. At some point, you're going to have to get out of your head and jump in with the rest of us. I changed in the bathroom that rehearsal. But the next one, I threw in with everyone else, and Annette was right. Theater and being shy don't mix. That first dress rehearsal, the husband of one of the women who worked for the theater, showed me how to operate the black powder pistol, and I got to fire it for the first time. Even though I prepped the pistol myself, with just the powder and a cut patch, firing it at the actor made me uncomfortable. But when everyone in the room screamed in general surprise, I loved it. And a ham was born. A group of people from the show went out to a local restaurant and bar after dress rehearsal. I sat with Paul and a couple of other cast members. Paul leaned into me. Spill it, Kit. What's the deal with you and Michael? And there, in the middle of a crowded bar, I told him the high-level story of how Michael appeared in my life. What my mother had called him for years. How he'd become a symbol to me of what it was to be gay. And how all of that made me awkward around him. Wow. No wonder you had that look on your face that first night. You noticed? Everyone noticed. I blushed. Including Michael. Great. He likes you, you know. Really? Yes. He's asked me about you a couple of times. He's in a relationship, isn't he? With that old guy? Paul chuckled. Well, yes and no. They have an understanding. What does that mean? This was all new to me. There are so many kinds of relationships in the gay community. Sometimes you're exclusive with your partner, and sometimes you're not. They love each other, live together, but because of the age gap, Michael has the freedom to fool around with other people. And anything beyond that is a question you should ask him. I could never, I said, thinking about having sex with someone who was already in a relationship. And I looked away thinking about what Paul had just told me, and my gaze, with no conscious intention, landed directly on Michael, who looked me in the eyes, raised his beer, and took a long drink without breaking eye contact. Paul watched the whole thing and let out a hearty laugh. Of course you couldn't, he said. Changing gears, I have a favor I need to ask you, Paul continued. After the show is over, Wendy and I are going to the shore for two weeks, and I need someone to house sit for me. I'll give you 30 bucks a week and leave the fridge stocked. Will you still be around, or will you have left for college? I'm leaving three weeks after the show closes. I'll be around. So how about it? House sit for me? Sure, why not? It'll be nice to get out of the house and be on my own. Paul rented a small arts and crafts styled cottage outside of town. I arrived mid-afternoon the Saturday he left for the beach. He was clearly a huge fan of Disney. He also collected fiesta ware and his kitchen was full of it. He had artwork, books, and plants everywhere. The place had a warm, centered feeling about it, and I felt welcome as soon as I stepped through the door. 
There was a note on the fridge. Dear Kit, the fridge is stocked as promised. Please water the plants once a week. Feel free to watch any movie in my collection. I put out a few that I thought you may like. The main number for the cabin where we're staying is on the fridge if you need it in case of an emergency. Do not have an emergency. I've also made a list of other numbers you may find helpful. Have fun, Paul. I scanned the list of numbers. There was the landlord, several restaurants, and at the very end was Michael's number. I knew Paul had told Michael I was house-sitting for him. I called him that Wednesday and asked if he'd like to come over some night and watch a movie. How about tonight? He asked. Sure. We agreed on a time, and he came over with vodka, peach snops, orange juice, and a handful of movies. I was put off that he'd brought liquor with him. I knew it was because of my history with Pip and did my best to let it go. We started watching TV, and he commented on the looks of some actor. I hadn't yet told him I was gay, though I imagine Paul may have. I could tell he was testing the waters, so I agreed the guy was attractive. I'm partial to Kevin Costner, I said. Michael groaned his agreement. And that was how I came out to him. He asked if I'd ever watched the 1940s French version of Beauty and the Beast. No, I didn't know there was one. It's brilliant. The special effects are amazing for the time period. The main actor is beautiful. He was also the director's lover. He put it in the VCR. It's got subtitles. Is that okay? Yeah, I like foreign movies. This is visually one of the best movies ever made. I'm so excited to introduce you to it. We were sitting on the sofa opposite the television. He had made his screwdrivers. I nursed mine. I hated that what Pip had done to me was bleeding into my time with Michael. I knew Michael better than Pip, having spent five days a week in his presence for the summer. But Pip had taught me a hard lesson, and my guard was up by default. We had our backs on opposite armrests of the sofa, facing each other. We were both wearing t-shirts, shorts, and socks. Our legs were overlapping a bit, foot to calf, and our torsos were turned to watch the screen. It was a beautiful movie. As we watched, he shared behind-the-scenes pieces of information about the actors, how this or that scene was filmed, and how particular special effects had been accomplished. Without looking away from the TV, Michael moved his foot and placed it on top of my quad, halfway between my knee and groin. I didn't comment or pull away. A few seconds later, he moved his foot just a little further up, and I still didn't comment or pull away. The way he gauged whether or not each touch was welcome before proceeding with the next telegraphed he was not interested in forcing anything to happen, which allowed me to relax and lower my guard. After a few minutes, I took his foot in my hands and began massaging it, which was the most physical intimacy I'd had with anyone since Pip raped me. That feels amazing. Did you take a class or something? Nope. First foot massage I've ever given. You're a natural. Eventually, he pulled his foot out of my hands and placed it on my inner thigh and waited. Again, I said nothing and didn't move away. He slowly slid his foot up my thigh to my groin and gently rested it there. I was hard from the second he'd touched me. He could feel as much and began to massage my erection through my shorts with his foot. What do you want to do? he asked. I don't know. To which he held out his hand to me. I reached out and took it. And we alternated back and forth between holding one another's hand and caressing each other's legs until the movie finished. I couldn't explain it at the time, but this felt much more intimate than anything Pip and I had done other than our first kiss. There was a palpable current flowing between Michael and I. He'd only been aware of my existence for a couple of months, but for me, 
I felt as if this moment had been building since the first time I saw him when I was 12. The way his existence had been woven into my life by my mother's hateful commentary made being on this sofa with him feel like destiny. It was as if I was finally catching some train that had been running beside me for nearly half my life. The movie ended. What did you think? He asked. That was one of the most beautiful movies I have ever seen. Thanks for sharing it with me. You're something else, he said. How so? You're just not on the inside what you seem to be on the outside. What do you mean? You're an old soul inside a young person's body. You come off as if everything is happy and glossy, but you're actually quite deep and thoughtful. I've had an interesting life. It forced me to grow up faster than I would have liked. He knocked my thigh with his foot and said, How about this one? And held up Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I know the books, but I've never read them or seen the movie. It's fun, and no subtitles. He got up to change the tapes and stepped outside to have a smoke. I couldn't maintain that posture any longer and stretched out on the sofa. When he came back in, he hit the start button on the VCR before heading back toward me in the sofa. I started to sit up, but he reached out, put his hand on my shoulder, and pushed me back down. Make room, he said, and almost sat on my lap. I quickly rolled onto my side and pushed myself back into the sofa. He sat down on my waist, and as he lay down in front of me, he slid one of his legs between mine. We laid there, with our legs entwined. He eventually took my arm and tucked it low around his waist, and draped his arm on top of mine. We spooned together as we watched the movie. I could smell the cigarette smoke in his hair. He wasn't wearing cologne, and smelled of soap, water, and Michael. I want to feel you next to me, I said. Take off your shirt. And we stripped down to our underwear and socks. You have a powerful body, I said. I thought he was going to melt. It's been a long time since anyone said anything that positive about my body. He lay next to me on the sofa, this time facing me, and I kissed him. Okay, he said. That won't do. What? Do I have bad breath? I asked. No, but let's talk about the kissing. And he proceeded, as kindly as possible, to give me a crash course in embouchure and tongue usage. Now, let's try that again, he said, and initiated a kiss. And he moaned. Much better, he said. We made out and explored one another's bodies for the next five hours. And then he held up a condom. And I froze. I'd like you to fuck me, he said. I've never done that. Now I really want you to fuck me. I... I don't know, I said. My only experience was with Pip. I had a clear idea of how not to fuck someone, but knew absolutely nothing about how to do it in a way that was pleasurable for both people. I can't wait to show you, he said. And he stood up, took me by the hand, and led me to the bedroom, where he showed me exactly how to fuck a man. It was not at all what I thought it would be. It was amazing. I could not have had a better teacher were more appropriate for his partner given the role he played throughout my life. It was pre-dawn when he left to go home. I went to take a shower and everything suddenly shifted. I felt as if I'd done something dirty and taboo. I suddenly felt soiled. I couldn't shake the feeling I'd just done something terribly inappropriate and wrong. I was struggling with the taboo aspect of anal sex, but also the body memory I was carrying around from my rape. Somewhere in my mind, I was accusing myself of doing to Michael what Pip had done to me, and in the most literal sense, I had, but the context was entirely different. Michael was not only a willing participant, but my guide and teacher. 
telling me step-by-step exactly what to do and how to do it. And we both enjoyed the experience, which made it profoundly different from what Pip had forced upon me. It took me weeks to separate my experience with Pip from what I had shared with Michael. I hated that Pip was still in my head and my body, even in the middle of what I'd shared with Michael. Carrie came home from Scotland, and we arranged to meet for lunch the week before I left for my junior year of college. She'd arrived before me at her favorite Roy Rogers, and was standing next to her car, armed with packs of pictures and a few things she'd brought back for me. I'm in love, she said as soon as I got out of my car. Of course you are, I thought. His name is Robert. He's 20. He's a hairstylist, and we spent 10 amazing days together. By the time I left, I was completely head over heels. Hairstylist, I thought. Slow down, I said. We went inside the restaurant, and she went over the whole trip from start to finish. Here he is. Isn't he handsome? She said and showed me a picture of him. My first thought was that he looked a little gay. Classic preppy gay. But he was handsome. Yes, he's very handsome, I said. He's been trying to get a visa into the U.S. for a long time, but they keep denying it to him because he doesn't have a permanent mailing address. Hmm, I thought. What does that tell you? I asked. That he'd be willing to move here if... And she trailed off and blushed. If what? What if he loves me too? And she spun out an entire future with the man in under 60 seconds. What if he doesn't? Doesn't what? Love you. She flashed me angry eyes. Then I still had a lovely trip. She was annoyed I had burst her bubble. Hey, she said. What's going on with your mouth? What do you mean? There's a dark patch under your tongue. I can see it every so often when you talk. She must have seen it when I said the word love. Michael and I had been making out a couple of days earlier. He asked if anyone had ever sucked my tongue. I said no, and that I thought that sounded gross. At which point he kissed me and sucked my tongue so hard, he ruptured a blood vessel where it connected with the floor of my mouth. It left the skin a very dark blue, almost purple color. Think fast, Kit. You know um, how when I finish a plastic bottle of soda, I'll um, suck all the air out of it and hang it off my tongue? Well, I uh, did that the other day, and when I went to pull it off, the vacuum was so strong, it, um, it did that to my tongue. She gave me a look that was equal parts confusion and deep consideration. No, she said. I can honestly say I have never seen you do that. Liar, I thought of myself. Epilogue. I never saw Elroy again after I dropped him off at his house that afternoon. He never said goodbye. He never again called or wrote to me. He just disappeared looking for the life he wasn't able to find within his family and hometown, which is typically what happened when people came out at that time in history. If they couldn't, or feared they couldn't, find acceptance from family, friends, and their community, they left to be who they were in parts of the country or the world that were more supportive and accepting. Twenty years later, I went on a digital manhunt to find him. I did, and sent him the following message. Dear Elroy, I wanted you to know that I have thought of you often over the years. Your friendship when we were young meant the world to me. Playing games at your house, writing letters when you moved away, reconnecting when you came back. I had so much going on at home when we were young, and I regret that I was never able to share any of it with you. I didn't have the language for it. I often felt we shared similar struggles. 
I wish I'd been a better friend to you then, and in high school. I always admired you for being yourself. I know it cost you. I was struggling with my own sexual identity, and pulled away from you when you probably needed a friend most. I remember that time we chatted in my car, and I shared with you that I may be gay. I was still getting comfortable with the idea. I didn't realize that would be the last time I'd ever see you, and I wanted to take the time to let you know I wish things had gone differently that day and throughout our friendship. I want you to know I admired your courage. I want you to know you made a positive impact on my life. And I'm glad we knew each other. Kit. I didn't get a response. After a couple of weeks, I assumed he was either no longer using that account or didn't want to connect with me. Then I received a reply. Kit. Thank you for reaching out to me all these years later. I haven't had a good life. Things have not gone well for me. It is incredibly difficult for me to think about my childhood. People from school have reached out to me from time to time, and you're one of the few people I've responded to. I wanted to say thank you for letting me know that you got something positive out of our friendship, and to ask you to let me go. It's too painful for me to connect with those years and anyone from them. I wish you the best. It was a difficult thing to read. I knew the truth of it. I saw firsthand how some of the difficulties in his life unfolded. I regretted I wasn't able to be there for him in more meaningful ways, and I understood his request. I didn't reply to his note per his wishes. I have empathy for his life and respect for his ability to know his limits and to have set that boundary. And so I let go of him in life, but still keep him in my heart. <laughs>